This is Mark Jackson, Isaac on the Orville, and you're listening to the Planetary Union Network, the Orville Fan Podcast. This is Geek Punk. A Google Media Production. Hello and welcome to Planetary Union Network, the Orville Fan Podcast. I'm Dan Taylor, and with me as always, co-host Joe Quickle, Michael May. Gentlemen, how are you? Hey, Dan. How's it going? Good. Doing great. You guys can't see it uh, because this is audio, not video, but as I introduced you, I pointed to each one of you as if you're in the room with me. (laughs) (laughs) me. Um, One day we'll have the uh, Planetary Union Network... uh, the video uh, program and we have a guest with us as well we have author jeff bond he wrote a little book that may be of interest to or the orville fans called the world of the orville jeff how are you i'm great glad to be with you we appreciate you coming on and joining us to talk about the orville um first off let's uh You've written a couple other books. Uh, give some, give our listeners an idea of what you've done before. You uh, have your writer and author and magazine editor. You work for Geek Monthly, correct? Back in the past, yeah, day? I I have been editor in chief. Uh, I've been in numerous positions uh, for Geek because Geek has been in numerous incarnations over the years. Um, I was the editor of the original magazine and i was a senior editor at another version and now i'm uh, i'm editor-in-chief of it again and it's uh, distributed through walmart right now which is interesting <laughs> um and it, that's a whole other story but um i i had done um uh i think about 20 years ago i did a book on the, the music of star trek and then i did a book on about Danny Elfman and Tim Burton that was part of a big uh, giant Danny Elfman Tim Burton anniversary music set that Warner Brothers put out and then uh, sort of because of that a guy named Joe Fordham um, asked me to work with him on a book uh, he was asked to do for Titan books uh, about Planet of the Apes uh, a few years ago and he uh, Joe works writes for Cinefx magazine which covers visual effects and he uh, had so much work to do with that that he wasn't didn't think he was capable of writing the whole Planet of the Apes book so he had me write the uh, first half of the book which is about the original movies from the 60s and 70s and then he was doing uh, coverage of the the newer movies and that um when we did that, Titan was very happy with it and told us, you know, we were going to get other jobs with them. And then two years passed and <laughs> I, we didn't hear anything. Uh, and then they contacted me last year to do, uh, I had been in contact with them off and on, actually. It sort of pitched a couple projects that, that had never really gone. And then they asked me to do this book on um the art of the uh, Kelvin timeline Star Trek movies, the J.J. Abrams produced Star Trek movies. Uh-huh. So I did that last spring, and it was interesting because we had launched Geek, um, had kind of relaunched that magazine, and we were doing the first issue of that when I was asked to do the Kelvin book. Uh, so that was a real scramble to do that. And then just as I was getting to the finish line for the Kelvin book, uh, they said, Oh, we want to do a book on the Orville and they wanted me to do that. And I was at that I was about to start the second issue of geek. So I did both of these books, um, while editing issues of geek and doing a bunch of other work. So it, it was crazy, but, uh, 
I knew about the Oroville and uh, it sounded like a, a crazy idea. And I think like most people, I wasn't sure exactly what it was uh, other than a kind of a Star Trek like show starring Seth MacFarlane. And I had, I think my own idea of what that might be like. Um, and so I was very interested in it and I, I knew some of the people who were working on it, like David Goodman and, and Brandon Braga, because in working, um, on magazines like CFQ and some other magazines, uh, like in the late nineties, early two thousands, I'd covered the, you know, Star Trek incarnations that were running at the time and had met uh, Brannon and, and later David. Um, and, you know, they, those guys are big fan genre fans. And uh, so I, I, I don't know I, that I'm exactly friends with them, but they know me and uh, they know <laughs> who I am. So that was a kind of a cool uh, element of doing this because I had to go over to Fox and, and meet, you know, I spent like a whole day over there just in a room where they would just bring in everybody who, who, who was working behind the scenes on the show. And then sit down and talk with them for an hour or so to get material for the book. And this was after just watching the pilot. Um, so I, even, you know, if you watch the pilot for the Orville, I'm not sure you'd be a hundred percent sure what the show was. Um, right. so uh, it was, a, it was a lo longer process you know, I got all these kind of interviews with sort of an idea of what the show was. And then in talking with David and, and Brannon, uh, the, you know, they encouraged me to see more of it. I was, I was given all the scripts, um, and, uh, the way that, uh, Titan works on the, uh, at, at least on these last two books is that they, uh, kind of provide me with layouts and artwork. Uh, so I know what I'm writing to. And uh, so in a lot of cases, I'm asking, you know, people specific questions about oh, what, you know, what was this designed for? Or what, you know, what was the genesis of this idea? Because I've seen it, but then uh, there was a lot of, you know, I had not seen 90% of the show when, when I sort of started working on this. Uh, so the challenge was they were really getting towards the end of filming the first season while I was working on this and they were scrambling to do their jobs uh, and still make time for me to, you know, get what I needed to do to do the book. So that's the well, short answer. And, <laughs> great. Um, now we'd like the long answer. No. Good. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, like a uh, oxygen tank. <laughs> we uh yeah you mentioned david goodman and uh we consider him a friend too I, michael and i've been on a couple podcasts with him he's a friend of the show whether or not he will admit it or not and he probably won't admit it um so you knew about the orville uh gone you'd heard pretty much what we had heard uh before anybody saw the first episode and we weren't sure what it was going to be fox had their certain way that they were promoting it of course and you know, it had Seth MacFarlane uh, from the mind of Seth MacFarlane. So we had, you know, ideas or thoughts and opinions what it might be like. Having seen the show now, the whole se this first season, having, you know, being the Trekkie that you are, and we'll cover a little bit more of your Star Trek uh, past as well. Are, are you an Orvillian? Are you a fan of the Orville? Yeah, yeah. Everything well, you were hoping I'm contractually to be? obligated to say that, <laughs> that I am, of course. But uh, the, uh, yeah, I, I, I'll tell you, um, it's you know another sort of interesting element of the Orville is that I think one of the reasons that it kind of came into being was the same reason uh, that Star Trek Discovery came into being, which was that there had been no Star Trek on television, you know, for for twelve years. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I've sort of watched on Facebook and social media over the past year is, uh, you know, Star Trek fans basically 
pre-deciding what their view of both of these shows is and sticking to it <laughs> in a lot of cases, you know, regardless of any facts. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it's interesting because so, so many people sort of pre-decided that they were going to hate Discovery, what, no matter what it was. And, and as the Oroville kind of got announced and people kind of started looking at it, I think a lot of people pre-decided that they were going to like this better than, than Discovery. Uh, I don't really measure them against each other. I see them as completely different. And I'm, I'm really excited by the fact that, you know, for a while, like every week I got to watch two brand new spaceship shows and two, uh, two shows that are very Star Trek like, but although you can make all kinds of arguments as to why they're not, may, may not be Star Trek. Uh, but they're permutations of, of, you know, very familiar elements of Star Trek and play with conventions of Star Trek. Um, and I, I really enjoy the Orville. I, I think uh, people probably assumed that it was going to be some kind of rollicking, you know, laugh a minute, uh, family guy type show shot in live action. And, and you know, even something like uh, some of Seth MacFarlane's movies, maybe, since that's what they would be familiar with in terms of, you know, what he would be doing with live action. And it's really not exactly what any of those things are either. And I think what's, what's, what people found difficult to sort of understand about the Orville was that it's, you know, basically treats the whole universe that it's created quite seriously. And, um, it's it, it's it treats its story seriously and the laughs come in fairly intermittently i i, I think the, the you know in watching the pilot i just i was not sure how it was really working and i think it you know obviously critics um tv critics were, were very uncertain as to how it, were, it was working they were, were you know kind of savage in their reviews of the pilot, but, uh, I think the pie, you know, it, it had in a way a more, even more difficult, um, kind of task to do in that pilot than the previous Star Trek shows had to, because it, they, it had to establish how this humor was going to work. You know, what, what, how is that going to be organic to the show? And I don't think the pilot maybe didn't quite succeed in that. It sort of set up this, uh, sort of hu husband and wife dynamic, which is a, a very much of a sitcom dynamic um, that wasn't maybe as fun as it wanted to be. Uh, but then by, by the time I watched the, the second and third shows, I, I think you got a much better sense of all the other characters and how they kind of got along and interacted. And then it started feeling, like a show and i think it's still a, str a very strange show it's very unique but i think that it works um kind of on a on its own level and it is a throwback um it, it's in in some ways it's a throwback to you know star trek next generation and a lot of these shows that seth is doing an homage to uh, but it's also a, a, a throwback to the kind of older kinds of science fiction stories, uh, you know, from the Twilight Zone or, or the original Star Trek. And, and uh, you know, I think Seth MacFarlane and the other writers on the show talk about that a lot. They talk about, they, you know, certainly that's part of the interviews in the book, uh, the type of storytelling that they wanted to do, that, it, that it's more of an old time anthology show. And I think they can get away with, kinds of stories on this show because of the the humor uh, that's part of it that that probably star trek now or discovery can't really get away with i don't think discovery you know could do a show where you go to a planet and uh you know it's like facebook right um because because that's it's it's not necessarily realistic and even, you know, discovery is not realistic, but the, the, the bar is a little bit higher in terms of what people are going to swallow and, and believe in terms of a story. Um, so uh, I think the Orville is a way of doing kind of classic old 
Star Trek and Twilight Zone stories, and you you buy it because there's an element where you don't have to take it 100% seriously. Yeah, we've there's discussed another 20-minute answer to your, <laughs> to your question. This no is how worries. I tend to roll. So. <laughs> uh, you're making it easy on us. Um, we've discussed on the podcast before how the humor uh, does exactly what you said. It brings these um, lofty science fiction uh, stories down to earth because the mm-hmm. uh, characters are very human, and for lack of a better word, in their discussions and their talk. And, you know, I mean, things as simple as we're not going to get out of here by five or can I have a soda on the bridge Yeah. to, yeah. you know, I hate clan, you know, clan hobo clowns are the worst because they're hungry. That sort of humor lets us, the viewer, get comfortable in the situations that otherwise would be completely, you know, fantastic and, you know, unbelievable. And that may have been a problem that the older shows like the original Star Trek or the next generation had was because they kind of had, I mean, I've said it before, they kind of had like a Shakespearean type feel to them because, you know, everything was so Mm -hmm. lofty, but this kind of, the humor brings the story down to a a, a relatable level. Yeah, yeah, and I I think that's, uh, you know, I don't know to what extent this has broken outside of, uh, you know, the Star Trek fan audience, but I, I would say it's done very well with fans and it clearly did well enough, you know, for Fox to uh, renew it for a second season, which uh, I believe somebody was saying this is like the first, uh, you know, space show on Fox ever to get renewed for a second season. You know, there's been space above and beyond, probably some other attempts to do this. And they something uh, called Firefly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, it's the fact that it's, you know, and it's an expensive show, <laughs> believe me. Uh, it, it, I mean, you can tell just by looking at the the visual effects, but if you go on the set, the set, uh, I, I don't think you, in a way, you don't really get an idea of how much money and how impressive the, the actual Orville spaceship sets are until you actually walk around on them because they literally built the first two floors uh, the first two decks of the ship and it's all one structure and you can, you know, walk up that spiral staircase and that's the, the level that the bridge is on. And when you walk on the bridge, they have a, like a 4k, you know, 180 degree led screen around that. That is the view screen. And they, they project the a- actual visual effects uh, you know, on that they can film, you know, all the star fields are, I think are, are shot live and there's no compositing. Uh-huh. Um, and when it's other types of effects, they have stuff that they project that, you know, if you're looking at it on the set, it, it looks like completely finished, you know, visual effects. And you actually get almost a sense of vertigo, like it, it, when they show like a planet or something, because you actually feel like you're looking out on, you know, some inf- infinite <laughs> void with a planet in front of you. And, the, and so they can get interactive lighting and, you know, uh, effects without having to, you know, rig, uh, uh, you know, lights f- for specific uh, shots. Uh, the, all of that stuff is live and it's really, really convincing. And I do just feel like you're walking around in a spaceship far more than you would, if you would have gone on any of the like next generation or Voyager sets, because the, the um, practical lighting is all built into the set. They have all these adjustable kind of led lighting that is, is real and you don't see as much equipment as you would, you know, on, on some of the older Star Trek sets. It's really amazing, and it occupies just this immense uh, space on the Fox lot in one of the sound stages. And in fact, uh, you know, now that Disney has bought Fox or is in the process of buying Fox, uh, there's been some talk about, you know, maybe bulldozing the, the entire Fox lot, which has been around, you know, like for a century. And, uh, it would be an incredible loss. And I, I wonder how it would affect uh, production on the show if they ever hmm. started to go that way. Um, now you, you mentioned another 20 minutes killed. 
Uh, we might have a two-parter podcast uh, episode. Yeah, seriously. Uh, now you I mentioned defy you to get to any other topics that you want to talk about. So. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned how expansive and expensive you know the sets are and the, the production, and it looks and you can see it in the episodes, and it, everything looks great. And do you think? Somebody other than Seth MacFarlane may have been able to convince a studio to go this route or to take a chance on this. I mean, because Seth MacFarlane's well, a cash cow for Fox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At Fox, I mean, maybe a James Cameron or somebody might have been able to. I, I mean, the, McFarlane just, you know, had such a great track record. You know, the, these shows that he's made have all become kind of cultural institutions in terms of uh, you know i'm a little bit older i'm not going to date myself but i'm more grew up on the simpsons and but it's been interesting watching <laughs> the simpsons be basically forgotten uh and you know if you talk to people uh sort of below a certain age uh, they don't know from the Simpsons uh, that like uh, it's all you know as far as like adult animation this type of show on television, the, the McFarland shows are the, the shows that they relate to and they, that they're sort of ground zero for, you know, a, a certain generation. So he had, you know, created, I think so much trust at, at Fox, uh, that I think in particular, there's something very unique about the show. Um, and when I was sitting and talking to people, I kind of kept bringing this up. I, I don't know. I never got to actually talk to, to Seth MacFarlane for the book, which was not surprising. Um, and and it, I, I think a lot of it was because they were down to the wire and they were, you know, really trying to finish the last few episodes. And he was the guy who really had to make all the decisions. But I remember kind of looking at the layouts for some of the sets and like in particular, um, for some reason, the captain's like lost, you know, his, his kind of swanky bedroom mm -hmm. that he has. And, and the fact that the show is about Seth MacFarlane, you know, basically kind of being chased by Ad Adrian, you know, this beautiful <laughs> uh, woman who's his, you know, kind of becomes a little humiliated as his wife and, and, and sort of has to, work his her way back into his good graces uh and it's almost uh you know it, it, it it's to have the creator of the show then play that role um and to know that seth mcfarlane is a huge star trek fan and that that this is probably what he wanted to do his whole life uh, there's a, that's why I sort of, you know, I sort of said that this is the, the ultimate fan film. I, yeah, I'm not sure <laughs> what, I, I think there's gotta be an extent to which he, he's very, very conscious of that. Um, but if you think about it, you know, what would you do if you were at 20th century Fox and they gave you whatever $50 million or something to make your own show? Of course you would want to make a show where you're the, captain of a incredibly expensive starship with a beautiful, you know, first officer who you have all kinds of romantic tension with, you would, uh, you know, have a show where, uh, Charlize Theron <laughs> comes on and you have a romantic relationship with her. You get in, you know, get to do all sorts of action and, you know, wear a, 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 a very Star Trek like uniform. I mean, is the, and, and then you've got, you know, the ultimate kind of a man cave bed, loft bedroom right under the bridge of the starship. Everything about it is sort of the ultimate, like, you know, fan, male fan dream come true. Um, but that, that, you know, and if you look at that just on its face, it, and, and I think a lot of people, you know, when the show was kind of savaged by critics, I think a lot of people sort of looked at it that, that way that, you know, this was, there was something maybe selfish about doing this from the perspective of a, a you know, creative talent that you were going to cast yourself as the hero in this kind of show. 
Um, but the, you know, the genius of it is that it actually does work. And because, uh, you know, Seth MacFarlane has kind of self-effacing sense of humor and that, that a lot of the show is about his, his foibles as a character. Uh, you don't really begrudge him, you know, this, this whole kind of fantasy. It, it, it all works because everyone is so humanized and brought down to earth. Um, so it, it, it's, you know, it's really fun on that level as, as just kind of like, you know, the ultimate fan fantasy of what you'd like to see. And it's, you know, it's, it's and it's the kind of stories that he wanted to, to tell. So, and I, I think that that's, there's a, some kind of fascinating, uh, like personal story there about, you know, Seth MacFarlane that he was able to do this and, and actually make it work. Okay. That, um, what you said there, I want to bring up a couple points. Um, and that's just to warn you. So you don't go on another 20 minute tangent with your next yeah, answer. Uh, <laughs> um, did last episode, we talked about that black mirror episode, USS Callister. Did you happen to see that? I did see that. Yes. Okay. What you've described in the way Seth and uh, taking this, the fantasy he has a star Trek and turning into the Orville is kind of similar to that episode. But that it that is? that character yeah. was very took a much darker approach to it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, we I had found... a, dis- a discussion yeah, ahead, on what that uh, you know because Star Trek fans, you're a Trekkie. Um, I'm a Trekkie. Michael is. Joe is. Uh, now we're big Orville fans, and with properties such as this, say you know Star Trek or Star Wars, even fans sort of take a ownership, whether deserved or not to call mm-hmm. it their own. Yeah. And Seth yeah. is kind of what you were saying. Seth has kind of done that himself by making his own show, um, based on, you know, the ideals of something that he loved and which is healthy probably compared to many of these people on the internet that claim, you know, yeah. You know, yeah, Brian I, Johnson's I, I out totally, of his mind for his movie. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, I have much more respect for, People who, you know, that's what I think people should do, particularly because, you know, fans now have so much uh, ability to do that. And, you know, to point to the various, you know, incredibly well-produced Star Trek fan films that have been done and and something like the Orville, which is not it's not really a a fan film. It's just it's sort of there's a relationship to to that but i i i admire people who don't just sit there and complain you know i know people who basically pay to watch star trek discovery every week so they can go online and point out everything that's wrong with it and uh to me that's like such an incredible waste of time it's like if this is really causing you some you know so much pain and anguish and anger watch something else or, you know, you know, make something new, uh, you know, why devote so much of your time to, to something like so completely negative. Michael, Joe, you have anything? I got some questions about the book. Yeah, we're going to hit the book. Why don't you, why don't you get rolling on that, Michael? <laughs> All, right, All right. Didn't I already talk about it? <laughs> sure. Sure. Go ahead. There's what's left to say. <laughs> well, I got some, I mean, it's, it's gorgeous. First of all, it's, um, and the, you know, just I'm holding it like the paper stock is awesome. I, I, but I'm curious, like, how much control did you have over, like, the contents and, um, you know, like the the, the, well, the chapters, I'll like what was you, actually going in it. Um, I, I got it's interesting because I, I I would say in a weird way I had slightly more control over this than uh, I had on the the, the Star Trek book, um, just in a in a couple of of areas. Like I say, in order to, these are done on incredibly short schedules. Like, uh, I think I had, I probably had at most six weeks to work on both of those books. And the way that the only way to be able to do that is for them to create a lot of the book layouts and the general look of it ahead of time. And then for me to write to that and, when I did all the interviews for, you know, I sat down at Fox and started talking to people and right away there was a, an obvious kind of narrative 
um, which involves some a lot of what we've been talking about, the idea that this was kind of like a you know, fan dream of a show and the, the, why the show, you know, why Seth wanted to make this particular show, what, what, what kinds of stories they wanted to tell his whole idea of, uh, you know, bringing back, um, a, you know, kind of a brighter optimistic science fiction look instead of being like a dingy post-apocalyptic, you know, dystopian look that he was sick of. So it was kind of clear that there was some kind of narrative and it, with the Kelvin book, you could not really construct a narrative because it was literally all kind of giant captions. Mm. Um, at most, you get like a big fat paragraph, but you could not basically turn through pages and, and read a story in, in that book. It, and that was purely an art of book. Um, so for this, you know, we went back and forth at the beginning that it, it, there was no space for, uh, you know, a, a, any kind of narrative uh, section. And, and I was asking about this because uh, there had been an original, um, you know, art of the 2009 Star Trek movie done by Titan. Um, and that has a, a core, you know, very dense written narrative. And I, and I was looking at that because they, sent it to me as an example of what we're going to do in the Kelvin book. And I was thinking, man, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this in the amount of time because there were so many sources and, and, you know, it it was a real fat book with a a heavy, heavy word count. And it it did, the Kelvin book did not wind up being exactly like that. It was, I, I got some great interview material. Uh, You know, I got to talk to a lot of people at ILM and, uh, a lot of the visual effects uh, supervisors and design people on on all three of those movies, and I got some interesting stuff. But it's all more giant bits and pieces than a, a story. So I I kept kind of asking about this on the Orville, and eventually uh, they started making room for that at the beginning of the of the book. And so the, the opening sections of the book is, is an actual narrative. It's not, you know, book length. Um, I, I think it's maybe like the opening 25% or at most maybe 30% of the book. And that tells, you know, a real narrative story of, of what these people were trying to do and how they're trying to do it. And then that breaks off into, you know, sections about the characters and costumes and weapons and all the designs and stuff. Right. Uh, the other thing that I had input on was that it was the book was going to be called just, I think, the art and making of the Orville. Um, and I wasn't crazy about that um, title. I thought it was really clumsy. So I, I'm not sure why, because uh, it works with some of the other uh, subjects that Titan has handled. But for some reason... I didn't like this. And I was thinking about, uh, you know, I read all these book making of books uh, growing up, like the, the original making of Star Trek. And there's another book by David Gerald uh, called the world of Star Trek, um, which I always loved. And I said right away, you know, my initial proposal, because we kind of went back and forth on what, sort of our ideas of what the book work was going to be. And to Titan, I wrote a little memo saying, you know, I thought we should call it the world of the Orville. And they basically never said anything about it, but I don't think that that it was their intent. And I wasn't sure whether they had basically pre-sold this already with, you know, their title. And so it couldn't be changed, but I was at a meeting of, at, at Fox, the uh, producer, and I'm blanking on his name and I shouldn't right now because he was actually pivotal in, in, um, in getting this book finished. So I'm going to look on IMDb and remember who, who this guy was. Um, but, uh, he called me back. He was very, uh, uh, interested. It's Jason Clark. Uh, and okay. he's, I think, kind of like the, the he's the guy who actually um, gets the, the show made. 
um, and uh, the you know the the other guys are are you know more uh, writer producers and and kind of show runners, but I think Jason is the, the nuts and bolts guy who who does the heavy lifting and but he's a very creative himself and you know I had done all these interviews and I when I in live in like the middle of the valley in Los Angeles and so to get from there to uh where 20th Century Fox is is like a murderous drive so I did not want to do it and I have you know childcare issues and stuff uh but he called me back over like twice to basically just sort of discuss like conceptualize, you know, this was like when I was in the middle of it. And uh, so at at the time I was like, geez, I don't want to do, you know, I'm too busy to do this. Uh, And he, the last meeting we had, he called, I had to go over like on a Sunday, which, and you know, weekends to me are are sacrosanct and uh, I want to really just be sitting on my butt doing nothing on the weekend if if I can help it at all. So I went over and nobody's on the Fox lot, you know, except for me and Jason and and this other woman who I, who I should also remember who did a, a lot of work. Um, getting this to the finish line, but they, they, we went through all sorts of notes and we're going through all sorts of things. And then at the end, like Jason's like, well, what do you think about this title? <laughs> and uh, he's like the world art and world, you know, art and making of the Orville. I don't know what that doesn't say anything to me. So I was like, Oh, I actually have another idea. And uh, I, so I, you know, and I didn't tell him what, why um i i i just thought it sounded better but but and i had a little bit sort of philosophical conceptual argument for why it was better and they both totally ate it up and and i had a strong hunch that they were going to force because jason at that point was really uh throwing his weight around and making them do a lot of things and changes that they i'm not sure titan would have necessarily done but I thought uh, there was a very good chance at the end of that meeting that they might use my title, and they did. So I was very happy about that. Another 20 minutes killed. Let me ask you this <laughs> about the book. Is there something in the book that you wrote, because you said you were able to add some narrative and such. Is there something in there? Because everybody we've talked to about the Orville, when we say, oh, who came up with this? Where did this come up from? They're like, Oh, Seth. Oh, that was Seth. Oh, I think Seth came up, you know, Seth, Seth had this all figured out already. Is there something in the book that you got in there that you can, that is now canon? Cause it's in this book that you can go, yeah, that's mine. I, I came up with it. Well, not, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, actually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just a, a terminology of one little, I you know, think, tool I'll or tell something. You one, there's one point and I don't even, I I think I left this in the book, but it might have been changed. I, I was, I had a lot of talks. One guy who was very helpful, and everybody I, I dealt with on this was super helpful. But uh, one guy who made himself very available was uh, Andre Bermanis. Um, yes, we've had him was, on the show. You know, he's awesome. Yeah, he's a terrific guy. And, uh, you know, when I was first doing a lot of the stuff on the show it literally was sort of like a you know technical manual sort of thing where you know okay we're how do the weapons work how do the shields work uh, you know what and so i was getting almost all i basically would just email andre and say you know okay what you know we need to know how the shield what do the shields do exactly how do they work and how does this gun work and he would just email me but oh well it could be something like this and then i just quote him directly and i think at one point we were there were some areas where you know i had not seen the episodes i was working off a script and just like a a photo maybe like of the brig or something and i had no idea what really happened and how it was used and so i was trying to figure out how the you know what how does the brig work and and so i basically emailed uh, Andre and we were going back and forth on like how the, you know, prisoners would be uh, held in the brig. And I said, well, what, you know, cause the, these uh, like screens, they're holding them like work by like, you know, 
drawing off the energy of someone who's pushing against like the screen, like where the you know screen would get stronger if you know based on how much force they were putting on it. And and then Andre said, oh yeah, that, it could you know it could work like that. So if, if there's any wording <laughs> like in that section that sounds like that, then yeah, then I made that up. But I don't. That doesn't mean it would show up on the show. It's just, you know, for, for the purposes of, of the book. But, but you know, ba- yeah, everyone was very much, um, you know, genuflecting towards Seth. Obviously, he, he hired them. But, you know, David and uh, and Brandon, you know, ran their own shows and, and you know, uh, you know, created numerous stories for, for Star Trek before they worked on the Orville. So it's not like they don't, you know... They can't invent things on their own, and they uh, both have come up with you know a lot of stories and story elements and, and things for this show. And it is a it is a collaborative a- effort, and I'm sure that Seth MacFarlane would say that if, if he would have been interviewed uh, for for the book, which he wasn't. Um, that yeah, this is a type of book that fans, you know. Because before the Orville came out, we were already saying, okay, we're going to be fans of this and we're going to throw ourselves into it. And, you know, good thing that turned out to be a great show that, you know, we can get behind. Um, but this is a kind of book that fans usually have to wait till season three or four cancellation to get. And we've got yeah. it at the end of the first season, which is great for all the cosplayers and all the prop, you know, fan prop makers and such. Yeah, this is this is the first uh, licensed uh, merchandise from the Orville, which I'm very I've never you know been involved in anything like that where I could say that before. So I'm very very proud of that. You know, what didn't happen because of me, but uh, it, to be involved in that is pretty exciting. Yeah, and it's uh, what the number one new release in art, film, and on video books on Amazon, and I think you're you know it top is? ten. And, yeah. It's, um, no, I should have, uh, I should have <laughs> bargained for some kind of piece of that, I guess. It's, <laughs> it's right, right now looking at it, it's number six in, um, arts books and art and photography, other media, film and video. And it's the number one bestseller in that category right now. That's great. Good to know. Um, and everybody who's, you know, we're on social media a lot you know, with, you know, the Orville fans and everybody who's gotten the book has loved the book, um, pouring over it, um, you know, enjoying the information that, you know, you're providing, which is great. As like you said, as a, as a fan and, um, so much of a fan, like in Star Trek, I wanted to bring up that you played the role of McCoy in the fan production. Star Trek was, it, is it, mm-hmm. what's the official title now? Star Trek new voyages phase two or phase two new voyages. Uh, it, it, well, I think it was, it was, it was Star Trek phase two and then it became new Vo- voyages. So I think there's a, uh, uh, some episodes that were called the phase two and some that were called as voyages, but don't quote me on that. Okay. Real it quick. How did confusing, how did you end up playing McCoy? <laughs> I think that James Cauley, uh, literally saw a photo of me on Facebook and thought my hair looked right. <laughs> um, which, uh, and, and he, it's very weird. He, they had a guy who played McCoy for years, who was a real doctor uh, and, and who got a job, uh, I, I guess in New Zealand. And so they were going to film this um, story and they needed a Dr. McCoy. And he's, uh, I had talked to James before and he knew some other people who, and he asked some other friends of mine, if, you know, they thought I would be in or <laughs> would want to do that. And, um, he had no idea that I had any, I actually had quite a bit of acting experience in, in, in college, um, uh, and had done a lot of Shakespeare and David Mamet and everything. And, and, and was constantly being told then to, you know, don't do it. So Star Trek like, <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I always wanted to do Star Trek acting and that, and do doing that show. And I want to, I did two of them and one of them will probably never be released. I did one with, uh, Richard Hatch from um, Battlestar Galactica, who was incredible and who nearly killed me several times because he's like, it was inhumanly strong. Um, 
and it, it was the the I mean, if you are like a, a fan of original Star Trek, uh, to walk around on these sets and be in these, you know, perfect cost, you know, costume reproductions. And they hired a guy from Cincinnati. I'm, I'm from Ohio. This guy was from Cincinnati, um, who was a cinematographer, but who had actually worked with Jerry Finnerman, who was the original cinematographer for the original star trek and he knew all of the tricks that that he used so he would shoot you and light you and you would look at it and it was like you had just been put back you know in time to 1966 or 67 and looked like you were you know part of star trek that was actually i think uh, probably the coolest thing out of all of it was just to be lit by this guy and to look (laughs) and see how all the different tricks you know he would put like a red like scrim cloth and you know between you and the the light uh and, and the camera lens uh to get this weird diffused look and he found some like wagon wheel and and figured out that that was what they used to do to do those weird splashes of light where you get those weird patterns you know in the like hallways of these like you get like these weird green and magenta light splashes and he knew exactly how all that was done so i could go on for like two days about how much (laughs) fun that was but yeah it was just uh everything you would you would want to do you know i got to do fight scenes i got to be tortured you know by alien rays and fight with richard hatch and it it was fantastic so are you game for a, a fan production of the orville (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it know. is like what it, it is the fan production of the Orville. I think that would be hilarious. I mean, I'd love to see what that was uh, if anybody would do that. Um, I, yeah, but uh, sure, I'm I'm up for anything. I mean, yeah, because we we we're playing around with our own audio fan production as well. It's called Ensign Henson, and we're doing mm-hmm. you know the story of a a character on the Orville. Uh, who's in the background and so we're doing our own audio version but yeah i i would love to see somebody you know tackle and do a fan film uh on the orville just 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 as i mean especially after seeing seth mcfarland's star trek fan film he made when he was like 14 you saw that on youtube right yep Um, yeah it's uh, i mean i think it's uh, it's i guess it's inevitable and it would be a, a just some sort of bizarre way of coming full circle for this um but yeah i I, it i mean yeah i mean the show already has a like i mean clearly it has podcasts uh it has its own fan base and uh that this is what fans do so i i I think that that would have to happen at some point yeah that would be awesome um and also i want to let our listeners know that we are giving away three copies of jeff's book the world of the orville and the information on how to get a chance to win one of the three copies is on our Twitter feed, at planetary underscore union. And all the information's there. It's real simple. You basically just need to follow us, you know, leave a comment and retweet the post to get the word out so we can, you know, uh, we can keep uh, selling as many copies of this book as we can on Amazon for Jeff. So they ask him to come back and do the uh, World of the Orville part two uh, later down so. the line. <laughs> well, Jeff, I want to thank you for uh, joining us this evening. Talk about Orville is great. Uh, we'll have you on maybe after uh, season two to talk about uh, that season and get your thoughts on where the Orville's heading. Yeah, I'm really interested in seeing what that's going to be. All right. And anything you need to plug? Any other books or projects you got c- coming out? Um, I, I will have in uh, in a couple months i would say i'm not going to plug it right now okay because um, you might be interested in it all it's right well old, the... old old timey it's about uh slightly older well basically uh original star trek era other tv sci-fi franchises and uh, shows movies that sort of thing that i know I can't be more vague than that <laughs> i know michael and i are into that because if it makes you feel any better jeff i'm 50 so okay 
Well, uh, I'm still older than you. So. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't know anyone older than me. So everything you've. Uh, but you the, know, the you... great thing about being this age, though, is that you've just seen everything. So you 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 appear to have incredible knowledge, but it's just because you've been alive. <laughs> I will have to let my uh, wife know that that it's you know it's a it's a plus. It helps to have a, it helps to have a, a an appreciative wife uh, where these matters are concerned for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, Jeff. Uh, th- again, thank you very much, and uh, go enjoy the rest of your evening. And we will uh, let you know when this uh, podcast is up on uh, available for your listening enjoyment if you care to listen right. to yourself. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Oh, <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good Jeff. night. Bye-bye. Anything else we need to discuss Orville-wise before we uh, sign off? Well, I, I do know. Uh, I'm not sure. if I, I don't know if he posted it on Twitter, but uh, I know um, that Joseph A. Poro is currently in China back at his um, shopping district that he was talking about before on our uh, interview. Uh, picking out fabrics for season two. That that will be impossible for cosplayers to find. Exactly. It, it absolutely will be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Michael, you got anything? No. Nah. Okay. Nah. <laughs> well, again, we want to uh, thank Jeff for joining us. That was a very insightful look at the book, which itself the world of the Orville is a very insightful look into the TV series, the Orville. The reason we're all here, the reason we're podcasting about the reason you're listening to this podcast is because hell, we love the Orville. And again, follow us on Twitter at planetary underscore union. If you want to get in on this action and try to win one of the three copies of the book that we're giving away compliments of Titan books, the publishers of the book, and you can also check us out on Facebook at Planetary Union, our Facebook page. And I think that's it until next time. Um, yeah, you know that giveaway. We sh- that, that should be our live uh, video stream. We should do a live video stream of when we announce the winners on that? Yeah, I think so. All right. Well, it's, it's, it's on. The, the giveaway is... Uh, going on until the end of the month. You have until midnight Pacific, January 31st uh, to get in on the action. So, so in the first week of February, we will announce the winners of um, that uh, the sweepstakes, I guess is what you call it, sweepstakes or giveaway. Yeah. All right, gentlemen. Awesome. Until next time. Until next time. (laughs) (laughs) You owe me Pepsi.